0: Welcome back to another episode of Journal Spotting. Have you been meaning to engage more on climate change, but your four night shifts in and all you can think about is what you're ordering at post-night's breakfast? Your ears are in the right place. This is the General Medicine podcast that will bring you a monthly roundup of the top, practice-changing articles, along with specialist interviews, guidelines, and more. We scout the journals so that you don't have to. We are the Journal Spotters.
1: Welcome to the very first Climate Zone, Regular listeners will be aware that we have been producing a number of environment-based episodes over the last few months. Check out our British Thoracic Society special, for instance, or our interview with Miss Risen on the environmental cost of healthcare and with Prof. Kelly on air pollution. So we thought, why not take the plunge, think of a fancy name to pull in the journal junkies, and start a series on the topic? After all, climate change is the single greatest and most imminent threat to humankind that we are aware of. We really think of a fancy
0: name Barney I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> climate <change. laughs> It's it's very fancy. Very very fancy John. But listeners this is not your average climate change podcast. This series is aimed at you, the healthcare professional working or training or studying wherever you are around the world. I um I think you're referring to our one listener in El Salvador, aren't you John? Especially our one listener in El Salvador. Muchas gracias nuestra amiga de Ala you don't
1: speak spanish do you
0: (laughs) today we will cover an overview of climate change to bring you up to speed digest the key reports discuss what your role as a healthcare professional is or can be and suggest what you can start doing to help as always we'll be sticking to the facts and citing the evidence as we go this is really us just wetting our listeners herbivorous appetites for climate health so we hope this inspires you to read more on the topic and go out and make a change Subsequent episodes, we will dig deeper into how climate change will affect our health, impacts on specific organs, and what you need to know to help and advise your patients. Today, to help us get through the smog of climate facts, puns, stats, and suggestions,
1: I'm afraid we have myself, Dr Barnaby Hirons, some guy I found on the street with the eyes of a lost puppy, otherwise known as Dr Jonathan Hudson, a journal roundup extraordinaire with an even posher voice than me, Dr Katia Florman, and... Returning after getting hooked by the BTS episode, the vegan shoe-wearing knitted COVID punch by creating, Dr LJ Smith. How about, as an introduction, we all admit how, like everyone, we are guilty of worsening climate change and what steps
0: we are currently doing to improve it.
1: Anyone going to go first? No? Everyone's Uh, looking
0: looking uh, down. Oh yeah? First thing is you gave me such a lovely introduction. So uh, my name's Jonathan. I get around south London mostly on two wheels but there is definitely the odd Uber and taxi thrown in when it's really not safe to cycle because of you know weather and the pub so yeah very much guilty of that
2: uh, thanks very much for having me back, and thanks for those admissions of guilt. I think I'm top of the Green League tables here as I'm vegan, which reduces my carbon emissions a lot and also stops destroying the rainforests. I've also t- stopped taking short haul flights, uh, which give me plenty of time on long train journeys to worry about all the MDI prescribers i here.
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. With you on the MDIs there, LJ. Go on, Katia, what have you got?
3: I'm not sure I can speak now after LJ's um, (laughs) all those incredible things. You are definitely head of the league table. I was quite happy with um, not eating meat for a few years, but sounds like I've got a bit more to do there. I have switched my energy provider, which is a very easy thing to do for anyone listening. I think my guiltiest um, emitting pleasure is there is a very special Greek island my family is from that so far you just cannot quite reach by train. So, you, I may or may not have a tan from there at this moment in time.
1: <laughs> and I think that's where we're going to have a record our next podcast session. Is that right? Absolutely. All over to Greece. Yeah. <laughs> that's great. Summer party. <laughs> For me, for me, I mean, travel is the thing. That's my biggest guilt. Um, I started thinking about this the other day and I actually looked it up and I've I've been to 61 countries, which previously I would have been really sort of quite proud of, but nowadays I actually just feel very guilty, especially when we lived in Australia. And I I looked up and a return flight to Australia is about 5.6 tonnes of um, CO2 and the average, in the the EU, the average person uses up about 8.4 tonnes in a year. And wow. we may have gone back and forth a couple of times for weddings during that time. So I did spend a huge amount on um, carbon offsetting, but that clearly,
0: we all know, is not the answer and does not undo the damage you've done. And Barney, to make so, you feel more guilty, the average Ugandan, I was looking this up the other day, emits 0.16 tonnes. Oh my so, God, that does make yeah. me feel more guilty. Thank you, John. Yeah, Thank you. That's right.
3: <laughs>
1: um, so personally to offsetting it, we cycled to cycled work and we've barely flown um, in the last few years, made it a bit easier by COVID. But even for, before that, we were just doing some essential flights um, and things like this podcast, trying to get the education out there to um, make other
0: people feel as guilty as me. <laughs>
2: Brilliant. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs>
0: so before we get stuck into the introduction to climate change that we've got uh don't forget listeners to rate us on apple podcast if you enjoy the show check out our websites troll us on twitter dance with us on tiktok actually we don't have tiktok yet so don't do that well you can or just send us some feedback on our email journalspotting at gmail.com uh Barney, do you want to kick off proceedings with a fairly daunting challenge which i'm going to give you which is can you just summarize what climate change is all about and you know how we got into this mess let's say maybe keep it under five minutes i mean just think about making it shorter than your rants about oxygen prescribing and you know that'll be easy
1: i will try my best john i will try my best all right um let's keep it simple and uh, i'm going to start like most eye-rolling grand round presentations and i'm going to start with a definition so thank you national geographic climate change is the long-term alteration of temperature and typical weather patterns in a place This could refer to a particular location or the planet as a whole. There are numerous possible reasons a change in climate could occur. So, uh, I mean, you know, over the history of the Earth, there's been at least five ice ages. But usually, and for the purpose of this podcast series, when we say climate change, we are talking about the devastating effect that humans are having on the environment. So, team, quick question. How long ago did we first start considering climate change caused by humans?
2: I mean, it must be a while ago. We've been doing science quite a long time. So I have reckon a- people have been thinking about this for a while and they've noticed that things are changing. I don't know. I'm going to say the n- 1700s. Uh, yeah, I good guess. Eight, I like it.
3: 1860, there Ooh. was a scientist who wrote about climate change. Mm. and The name has escaped me, but well, that wh- date is in my head.
0: And my answer is, I think we should ask ExxonMobil. I think they (laughs) do first.
1: (laughs) So you're, you're right, you're right. But actually, as far as 300 BC, a Greek dude called Theophrastus noted how local climate change occurred when humans drained marshes or caused deforestation. So people actually thinking about the concept of this at the time. So the concept is not new. So let's skip to more modern times. Um, let's go to the 1800s when we had the Industrial Revolution. Barney, remember that well? I do. Yeah, back in my back when I was a child, <laughs> this this occurred when we realised that burning coal was a fairly inefficient but cheap and easy source of energy coal produces a variety of gases including carbon dioxide, methane and hydrocarbons and around this time it was realised that these chemicals could absorb heat and contribute to what was later known as the greenhouse effect. These scientists generally thought that a hotter planet would actually be quite nice and the concept brought about no significant concerns.
2: Thanks very much great great grandparents.
1: Yeah exactly. Um, After this from the late 1800s It only took close to a bloody century of mounting evidence, tests, longitudinal data, expert scientific opinion, coupled with a fair amount of tree-hugging, bridge-blocking, and placard-waving, not to mention the increasing natural phenomena such as hurricanes and fires before the world really started paying attention or even giving a damn. Key scientists such as Callender, Keeling, and Schmidt. Push things along with research clearly demonstrating both the effects of CO2 on our climate and the incredible rate at which atmospheric CO2 was increasing, which correlated nicely with what humans were producing. Key heroes who pushed the message to the public include, amongst others, Al Gore and good old Greta Thunberg, who I hope needs no introduction.
3: Is it not Greta Thunberg, but anyway, oh, I'm just... Oh, <laughs> yeah, sorry, Greta. If you're listening, Greta, I do apologise. <laughs> Um, Yeah, just thinking about that, imagine if Al Gore had become president instead of Bush, would we live in a completely different world now?
2: Yeah, I mean, uh, Greta wasn't even born when that election took place. Um, I'm pretty sure even as a toddler, she would have done a better job than the current (laughs) lot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, So look, I mean, aside from fossil fuels, other key human causes of climate change include deforestation, agriculture and cement making, amongst many, many others. Bring on the 1980s where there was very clear evidence of a significant increase in the number of shoulder pads, perms, Pac-Man posters and global temperatures. In 1988, yes, legendary cartoon Count Ducula burst onto our tiny deep television boxes, but it was also the hottest year on record. We have smashed that record since, not our proudest victory, but at the time it gained public attention. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, was therefore started and followed by the Kyoto Protocol, both aimed at pushing governments to reduce greenhouse gases. Throughout, mainstream media and certain governments tried their hardest to discredit what was deemed as scaremongering in favour of burning fossil fuels to make more easy, dirty money. Some of you may remember as recent as 2012 when Trump, our biggest podcast fan, tweeted, oh gosh, my American accents haven't got any better, Um, The concept of global warming was created by and for the Chinese in order to make U.S. manufacturing non-competitive.
0: Oh, good old conspiracy theory to keep us all distracted from the truth, eh? Nightmare.
1: The Paris Climate Agreement came in 2015. The key of this was to stop temperatures from reaching a sustained rise of 2 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. Two degrees was thought to be a crucial tipping point that would cause catastrophic and potentially unsurvivable climate issues around the globe. Only a few years later, the
3: IPCC decided that crucial figure should be reduced to 1.5 degrees. I suspect you're going to tell us how close we are now, Barney. Sure. Well,
1: firstly, we have just completed the hottest decade since records began in 1880. Now, if that doesn't build up a sweat, 2016 to 2020 were the top five hottest years ever on record. 2020 tied hottest with 2016 at 1.25 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels.
3: That sounds that sounds pretty bad. But I remember there was some discussion that this was partly explained by the El Nino effect.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely true. I, um, in 2016, there was. El Nino, Nino, which means global temperatures were naturally expected to be a bit higher. We cannot use the same excuse for 2020, unfortunately. And this, my patients, journal junkies, is where we are today. Temperatures are rising. Natural disasters, storms, droughts, floods, fires, heat waves are occurring almost daily. Currently, globally, one football field of forest is cut down every single second. Developing countries are still using coal as their primary source of energy. Developed countries are still selling and using fossil fuels for easy money. But beyond the planet-destroying issues of climate change, related pollution is poisoning nearly every human on Earth and affecting our health in numerous ways. So let's move swiftly on. Now, LJ, would you like to tell us a bit more about why climate change is also a health crisis?
2: I would love to. Um, I could at this point run through a list of all the millions of ways that pollution and climate change affect our bodies. But we'll be bringing listeners deep dives into specific diseases and organs in later episodes. Spoiler alert, it's not just the lungs, even though they are the best organ. But really, we need to think about climate change and health and how they're intertwined. The climate crisis is a threat to public health and healthcare itself is a significant contributor to climate change. We've made absolutely huge gains in life expectancy, childhood mortality and quality of life over the last 50 plus years. This is a really great time to be alive. But climate change threatens to undermine all these gains. The Lancet Commission on Health and Climate Change really is a central reading and describes climate change as the greatest global health threat. And for good reason.
0: Wow, the greatest global health threat. They really are not mincing their words.
2: They're really not, but it's all backed up with data. So the threat comes from more intense heat waves, higher risks of flooding and damaging storms, changing migration patterns, increased air pollution, and a changing pattern of emergent infectious diseases. We've had enough of those already, right? Many populations, particularly in the global south, are already experiencing these threats and have been for years. In addition, population displacement and armed conflict over productive land risk destabilising economies, states, and therefore healthcare systems. And these are also all major threats to public health. The healthcare sector is also not an innocent victim in climate change, it's a cause. As healthcare professionals, we therefore have a vital role to play in mitigating climate change. This is also not optional, because there's legislation now which means that the healthcare sector will be forced to reduce its emissions. Here in the UK, back in 2010, NHS trusts started to become subject to the government's carbon reduction commitment, and this requires them to pay upfront for each year's energy-related carbon emissions. The 2020 report, Delivering a Net Zero NHS by Sir Simon Stevens, part of the Greener NHS Strategy, goes much further and has committed the NHS to be the first carbon net zero healthcare service by 2045. This is something really to be proud of. Already, NHS organisations are being measured and judged on their environmental credentials, and increasingly environmental cost effectiveness will become as important as financial cost effectiveness in medical care. Now, I I think, um, Katia, you're going to touch on this subject, including the Lancet report, but I just want to point out that this change is really exciting. So... Um, It sounds like doom and gloom and like there's a lot of work to do. But actually, by looking at how we deliver healthcare and by making changes to reduce emissions, we often find solutions which lead to better patient care, higher staff satisfaction and even cost savings.
1: Yeah, it's great. Unfortunately, to many people, I'm sure that sounds too good to be true. (laughs) But
2: yeah, it does. But really, it really is win-win. The benefits come from a number of areas. They come from preventing the initial health impacts of climate change. They come from improving well-being through health co-benefits. And these co-benefits offset part of the cost of intervention. There's been some numbers put on this. So in the UK alone, reaching the country's ambitions under the Paris Climate Change Agreement could see over 5,700 lives saved every year from improved air quality, 38,000 lives saved every year from a more physically active population, and over 100,000 lives saved every year from healthier diets.
1: Sounds like it's probably worthwhile. Yeah. I
2: reckon, <laughs> I reckon a bit of effort might, you know, a might bit be worth of it. it. That
0: sounds, sounds worth it, certainly. Nice. Awesome. Thanks, LJ. So, so what have we done so far? So we've looked at, Barney's sort of summed up how we got here and why climate change is a problem. Um, LJ, you've really nicely laid out why it's also a health problem. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about what role we as healthcare professionals have in all of this. Um, is it all a matter of just checking what you're putting in your recycling bin, offsetting all your flights to Ibiza every summer? Barney, I'm looking at you and hey presto, climate crisis is over. I think it will come as no surprise, given what we've heard from LJ, that there are a lot of people that think health professionals are going to be able to play a very important role in the battle against the climate crisis. Some people even say that we've been here before with the fight against tobacco industry and convincing everyone that inhaling smoke weirdly does damage to your lungs.
1: No great evidence on that, John. (laughs) It's
0: worth doubting.
2: Okay, John. So, what can healthcare professionals actually do?
0: So, I'm going to draw on a nice opinion piece by Anthony Costello and Hugh Montgomery, two big names in climate science, to try and answer that. They've got a really nice opinion piece that we will link in the show notes. But they suggest that first we should try shouting it from the rooftops or down your podcast mic in this case that climate change is a health problem. We're in an incredibly privileged position in the world of being one of the few professions that is actually trusted by the public. We should make it very clear of the links between the climate and health for the public and our patients. Second, we should advocate for political leadership in high intergovernmental bodies to reduce the risk of climate change. And thirdly, people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. We need to decarbonize our own practices as best we can, both at work and at home. I can't
1: help thinking that throwing stones in glass houses could be quite fun with the proper protection. But anyway, John, what you're saying is literally shout about it, try and get someone to do something about it and do something about it yourself. I like that. It's a really clear message. That's great.
0: Get it on a T-shirt. And it wouldn't be an episode of Journal Spotting without some of the latest medical literature thrown in. I've got a recent study published in Lancet Planetary Health a few months ago, where it surveyed 4,500 healthcare professionals all around the world, from lots of different countries on their views of climate change as a human health issue. They did this by sending out a survey to 12 health professional organizations around the world.
2: There's actually a, a good number of people in that survey. What did it find out?
0: Well, uh, reassuringly, 95% of participants think climate change is happening, with only 2% denying it, and 81% think it is mostly or entirely caused by human activities. Everyone largely agrees that climate change is an existing and growing health issue, And the majority of those surveyed feel a responsibility to educate the public and policymakers about the problem.
2: Thank God for that. I'm feeling a bit more reassured. (laughs) I was a bit worried about where you were going with that climate denial. OK, so people are into it. That's great to hear.
0: People are into it. But despite all this awareness of the issue, the survey revealed lots of barriers that people felt were preventing them from committing and engaging to education advocacy. Unsurprisingly, 54 percent said that time was the biggest barrier. Another important finding was that over 40% of them felt that insufficient knowledge about the topic impeded their engagement on the issue.
2: That sounds really familiar. So two problems really identified in this survey. One, the need for more time, and the other, more resources.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. And it's easier said than done, really. I mean, time is not an easy thing to come by, especially when you're a slave to an on-call rotor and have missed more friends' weddings than you actually have friends. But the article nicely points to how organisations that employ health professionals can and should support employees to engage in education and action on these issues. And on the issue of knowledge, this should turbocharge efforts to investigate efficient and effective ways of offering more education on this issue during our training.
1: Yeah, that's great, John. I mean, it it sounds like you're telling us there is a a lot of belief and potential out there. We just need to knock down some of those barriers first and um, and then we can really start getting change in the way. Um, Listeners, you're probably thinking about what you could possibly do on an individual basis so we have decided as uh, as your, uh, your hosts that what we're going to do in every episode is going to take it in turns to propose a climate challenge. Um, so how this is going to run? Your loving hosts will attempt to complete said challenge by the next episode. And we want you, the listener, yes, you, daydreaming out the bus window thinking of how guilty you should really feel about your palm oil made in peanut butter. That's me, by the way. We we want you to try and do it too. Helpful websites, apps, etc., will be included in the show notes to guide you on your way. And feel free to share your challenge with others. And also feel free to feel extra smug if you complete it. Please let us know how you get on with pictures, tweets, aned- anecdotes, etc., uh, which you can send to us on Twitter, email, Instagram, or whatever. Awesome stories we'll get a mention on the next show, and you may even win yourself some incredible journal spotting merchandise
3: incredible merchandise <laughs> barney please what is this
1: <laughs> well um so far it mainly includes journal spotting mugs ooh, pee, and some badges so uh you know you
0: could be in luck listeners
3: i mean those sound pretty good they sound pretty incredible to me
0: we get, we're working on some journal spotting tupperware uh <laughs> so team uh, Anybody want to go first with their climate challenge, what will it be? Should we chain ourselves to the oldest oak in the forest to stop it being cut down one day? Or should we set sail across the seas and stop whaling in Japan? Any ideas?
2: I mean, they sound great, but um, (laughs) I also do have a day job, so we might need something a bit more close to home. Time Um, was
0: the issue, hey, okay.
2: (laughs) I've definitely got one if you're up for it. Yeah, go on, LJ. So I hear that it's plastic-free July. And I don't know about you, but I feel quite a lot of guilt when I'm standing over my different bin receptacles wondering what can go in the recycling and what can't. And I used to do a lot of what's called aspirational recycling, which has just shove loads of stuff in the recycling, which actually can't be recycled, which is the worst thing you can do, it turns out. Yeah. Terrible plan.
3: Yeah, we've all been there.
2: (laughs) So my challenge for us between now and our next gathering will be to reduce our plastic to as close to zero
3: as possible. okay all right all right (laughs) oh Oh, can i just clarify no plastic that can definitely be recycled so
2: plastics can be recycled but it's not great Mm. um and maybe we can get into that on a a future episode but some things are better recycled than others and plastic is not great in in general so our best option is just to reduce the amount we use
3: okay okay
1: sounds great sounds like a good challenge i'm instantly panicking about well, peanut butter. No, actually, no. Mostly in glass um, yogurts, um, cheese wrappings, those sorts of things. This is going to be a challenge, um, but I like it. Yeah, good one, LJ. We'll we'll, we'll crack on with that. Yeah.
3: Okay. okay. Starting today. Starting yeah. today. Okay.
1: <laughs> okay. Starting today. <laughs> awesome, guys. All right, we'll we'll have to shelve that, um, and let's, uh, Katya. Do you want to? Take us you know, more through, you now John's gone through on an individual basis. Do you want to take us more through possible changes on an organizational level?
3: Yes, definitely, Barney. And this is hopefully going to help um, everyone feel a little bit less guilty when we all fail our personal challenges. We can just blame it on the big organizations. But actually, seriously, organizational level change will ultimately be much more impactful than just individual actions. So I'm going to have a look at what healthcare organizations can actually do and what they're actually saying they're going to do. So those of us who work in large NHS hospitals likely see inefficiency and waste all around. I mean, I can hear the collective groan from the audience.
1: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think it it varies a lot from hospital to hospital. And it's one of those things, once you start seeing it it's really difficult to unsee and you know you can take up a lot of your your mental load during the day
3: yeah uh, what i mean i can think of so many so many things i'm just sort of flashing before my eyes now but what what are your guys's pet peeves you can share well you know,
0: I, the, the the way the recycling bins are used in hospitals is just i don't know
3: you te- open it dreadful. there's a plastic glove yeah you know, it's, it's gone yeah every time
1: lj what are your pet peeves
2: I just I can't bear the amount of just plastic we use I mean really do I need to put an apron and gloves on to go within the curtain area of my patient like that's a lot of plastic for what seems to be very little benefit yeah, yeah. I
1: mean how many patients are actually going to sort of vomit all along your top on <laughs> every single one yeah. I mean no, it has happened crazy.
2: but it's not a daily yeah. occurrence so I think, yeah. I think we'll go a few of those aprons yeah
1: no i agree and then you know things like the procedure kits um where you open them up and there's a huge amount of stuff in there and they're all individually wrapped and some are better than others but it's that's the sort of thing which every time i sort of roll my eyes and then you then you realize that for some reason you've locked you've broken something or dropped something and you're like the only other decision i've got is to open up another one and that makes you feel really terrible so yeah Yeah. anyway yeah
3: Okay, so I'm sensing a theme of essentially plastic, which is great, given our challenge. Um, I wonder how well we're all going to do given that. So yeah, it's a problem, it's everywhere. And it can get, once you start thinking about it, if you think about it constantly with every single action you do in a day, it can get quite stressful. And finding a workable solution can seem really daunting. I've certainly experienced how just a lack of time, energy, money, everything can prevent even the most enthusiastic clinicians from moving forward on a sustainability issue. The health service, as we've alluded to, and LJ described very eloquently, does play multiple roles in reversing the climate crisis. And of course, it's a huge emitter itself. So let's just cut to the chase, the number we've all been thinking about. What is the NHS's contribution to UK greenhouse gases, guys?
2: Oh I know this one so I'm not I'm going to let you guess.
3: Well Chantal
1: Risen, I think she um she was in episode um I think it was 25 uh, told us it was around the 5% mark I think. Is exactly. that right?
3: Exactly. It's 5% and the contribution from healthcare globally is pretty similar to at around 5% of total emissions.
1: Okay so about one twentieth of the total greenhouse gases um emitted globally is from healthcare. I mean, yeah. yeah. It, 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 gosh, yeah. It makes you think about all those things we've been saying, isn't it, and how important it is. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and it's and it's difficult because we're not really the ones with the power to not wear the plastic aprons. But anyway, we can we can think about it a lot. So I just wanted to talk a bit about where the where these emissions actually come from. The Lancet published a great paper quantifying the carbon footprint of the NHS in 2019. So they did some top-down and bottom-up data and modelling, and with that came up with what they called a hybrid model that calculated NHS emissions in carbon dioxide equivalent units.
1: Okay, cool. And what did they find, Katya?
3: So actually most emissions, so 62%, came from the supply chain, and the bulk of that was from manufacturing goods such as pharmaceuticals and chemicals and medical equipment. Delivery of patient care was the next biggest emitter at 24%, And then that was followed by travel of which they included patients, visitors and staff at 10%. So that's the breakdown. Then they did talk about the progress we've made. So there was actually some good news. We're not going to be all doom and gloom on this podcast. We've seen a reduction in carbon dioxide equivalent emissions of 26% since 1990. So that's a total of 25 megatons of an equivalent of greenhouse gas emissions. So, to put that in the context, it's the same as removing emissions from 5.5 million cars driven for one year. Actually, when I was looking at what that was equivalent to, it's not as much as it sounds. And I I didn't put the number of flights that that's equivalent to, because it's not actually that many, but does definitely make you think about flying. They also looked at emissions per inpatient episode, and they found that there was a 64% decrease in those from 1990 to 2019 per finished patient episode.
1: Okay. Well, okay. Sounds great. So we're we're actually making progress, and that's really great. Um, Is this therefore time to hang up our recycled plastic clogs then?
3: Oh yeah. If only. (laughs) To be honest, I mean, most of the overall reduction came from the decarbonisation of the UK energy system, and obviously that's out of the NHS's control. But anyway, it makes our numbers look good. Um, And that's the bulk of the emissions. But actually, since 1990, there's been sort of three phases of what's happened. So in the 1990s, um, there was actually a steep decline in emissions due to the phasing out of chlorofluorocarbon propellant inhalers and the reduced use of coal and oil for heating, both in hospitals and in the supply chain. That's quite self-explanatory. Then from 2000 to 2012, there was a rise in emissions due to massive investment in healthcare in general. And the percentage of GDP spent on healthcare at that time actually almost doubled. And then actually since 2012, the UK energy grid decarbonized. And then since then there's been a reduction in emissions. Okay,
1: interesting. So, so what can individual trusts and CCGs do now? Um sounds like it's all gosh, it sounds like it's all about our national electricity supply, really, which is pretty much out of the NHS's hands.
3: Yes. Well, that that is sort of what's been, ha- how the reductions mostly have been made since 2012. But um, they have actually got a very, very ambi- ambitious new plan from 2020, as LJ mentioned. So I um, will expect that as clinicians and NHS employees, we're going to be asked to do a lot more. So they uh, do plan to deliver net zero by 2040 for the emissions we control directly and net zero by 2045 when those that we can influence but not control directly are included. So that includes things like emissions from patient and visitor travel, and then medicines that patients use at home. So the Delivering a Net Zero National Health Service report um, outlines all of these details and what they plan to do about it. It is quite long and a little bit wishy-washy at times, but it does show some improvements we can make in these areas and the projected impacts that those will have.
2: It's got some really nice diagrams though. I've stolen them for many a presentation. They're, They're very good at
3: graphics. You're right. It's it I shouldn't maybe I shouldn't say wishy washy. I just sometimes <laughs> you look at it and you think, but how are we going to get all those arrows to move downwards? But the diagrams do make it look like they've got like they've got a really good plan. Great. Well, what, what, what
1: are what are, um, direct examples do they do they give, Katia?
3: Yeah, so um there's quite a lot of detail in there. They, for example, they've committed to purchase only renewable energy from April 2021. I'm actually not sure how well we've done, given that April 21, 21 has now passed. I was trying to look that up and I couldn't actually find it. I don't know if, if LJ, you know about that.
2: I don't know. Lots of these things, sadly, have been slightly waylaid by this minor thing, the global pandemic we've been dealing with. But I think people are really getting back on track now. So I guess yeah. there'll be more out later this year. I think that's the expectation.
3: I, I expect we haven't done that from April 2021. But I don't want to, you know, be too negative. And um, they've also got an NHS plastics reduction pledge and 145 trusts have actually signed up to that. And they have made some good progress on that through NHS supply chain. Although it is actually just about reducing plastics in hospital canteens rather than in clinical use. So don't get too excited about your plastic free chest strain kits yet, guys. <laughs> Um, There were some examples of individual successes, such as Operation TLC, Operation TLC, I like
1: that. What is that, like no scrubs or? <laughs> you definitely shouldn't tell her to work with no scrubs,
0: Barney. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but, but singing the song, you'll be fine. No, they didn't actually have that R&B trio at the forefront of their mind, unfortunately. It's actually the less catchy, turning off equipment, switching off lights and closing doors at Bart's own Health NHS Trust, which does seem very, very simple, but was mentioned as a, one of their success stories. And it did, as you can imagine, reduce carbon and save money. In terms of delivery of patient care, which the Lancet paper we mentioned suggests is the area the NHS has the most control over and leverage, they did say there were some good examples such as converting anaesthetic gases from desflurane to lower carbon alternatives such as sevoflurane, and then choosing dry powder inhalers instead of meter dose inhalers, as I'm sure our respiratory physicians are big advocates of.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Kathy. It sounds great, actually. I mean, I think there are quite a lot of things that we probably can be getting on with then.
3: Yes. I mean, there are, there are when you think about it and the report is actually a pretty good guide about what the options are. I would say from personal experience, um, the first thing you can do if you're listening still is that you can get in touch at your hospital with your sustainability officer and try and start a green network of passionate staff. I have one at my my hospital and it really helps to keep the momentum and going and keep the enthusiasm up.
2: That's such a great tip. I've seen that work in quite a few places, including where we work. And I think it's because it really marries up this sort of top down approach of what the NHS um, net zero report is demanding of trust and also the enthusiasm from individuals. So it works really well. Um, I think linked to that, it's just really important that at this point we mention um, the Center for Sustainable Healthcare and Frances Mortimer, who's the medical director, because I think she has written a few papers that really show how we can start to bring these changes about um, in a practical way in our organizations. So there's two articles in particular that she's written. One is the Sustainable Physician and one is Sustainability and Quality Improvement, Redefining Value. And I think these are really great reads. They describe a future low carbon health service that will have a number of benefits. So it will be better at preventing illness, give greater responsibility to patients in managing their health, be leaner in service design and delivery, and use the lowest carbon technologies. And I think the reason that I really like these papers is that um, she brings it back to considering what value is in healthcare and talks about it as outcomes for patients divided by social, financial and environmental costs. And this is called the triple bottom line, which I'm sure I will reference again and again as we go through. Um, And it's such a useful framework because I think as healthcare practitioners, we see daily that many of the causes of ill health are actually rooted in social and environmental conditions. And this gives us a way to quantify more than just financial outcomes for any of the interventions that we're putting in place. And it also gives us concrete tools that we can apply to our practice and that we should all be ab- incorporating into research, service development, and every single quality improvement project that anyone is doing globally.
1: I think that sounds like a great tip there, LJ. So I um, mean, yeah, equip that helps save the planet has got to be more appealing than yet another VTE or microbiology audit. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's awesome. And let's just go through those, um, that triple bottom line again. So it's uh um, you know the outcomes for patients divided by social financial and environmental costs and that's what we, we should be thinking about brilliant
2: That's yeah it, absolutely
3: and I mean LJ do you have any sort of top tips for the listeners about how to see a sustainability quit maybe all the way through to the end I think I've just had experience of them sort of losing momentum quite easily
2: yeah, I think probably the best tip would be to make sure you're aligning what your trust or your supervisor wants, and then also aligning your own values and sustainability in there. So, any, any quality improvement project can be a sustainability project and that's just by adding these different values in so if for Mm. example we did one recently where we were looking at oxygen prescribing i know that's barney's favorite topic um and we added in um, looking at the environment environmental impact in terms of co2 equivalents of the oxygen wasted by poor prescribing and so Mm. it was already aligning with what the trust wanted and what the department wanted but it was also a bit more inspiring for the junior doctors who were going around measuring all the flow rates
3: yeah. And then you, you sort of have another thing that keeps you going and gets you excited about doing. Definitely. Doing. That yeah. I like mean, innovative.
2: it's hard to get people uh, excited about quips, but I find <laughs> that when you talk to them about sustainability quips, suddenly there's new energy. And I think we need these skills. We need to be doing quality improvement to improve clinical care. But if we can align it with sustainability as well, it's just win, win, win.
3: Mm. Great, thanks.
2: So just to bring it back to the Lancet Commission, um, I think this really brings us a lot and is a really great thing to read if you're just going to read one thing. Um, One of the things I love is that it gives us a really hopeful message that in adversity, there's opportunity. So climate change is a major threat and that can feel quite disheartening, but it's also a huge opportunity to redefine social and environmental determinants of health. And what we're aiming for is to create a just future, which leaves no one behind. And that's a vision I can really get excited about. I hope our listeners will too, because there are big changes that need to be made and it will take all of us to make that happen.
3: Thanks, LJ. I mean, it does sound like there is some hope and therefore opportunities to tackle more than one problem at once, just by putting some energy into our actions on climate change. I noticed that you talked about creating a just future. What do you mean by that exactly?
2: Yeah, thanks. Um, It's not really the kind of language you use a lot in healthcare, but I think uh, if we remember the basis of medical ethics, the four pillars are autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence and justice. And I also think it's our job to challenge the norms that brought us to where we are. I mean, we're on the brink of environmental disaster with a system that's not fair and which actively prevents some groups of people from achieving good health.
1: (laughs) Eldra, I think that sounds imminently sensible and absolutely real. Um, I think challenging the norms, bringing about practice changing articles with high quality evidence to our journal junkies is 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 what we're all about on journal spotting and also trying to say journal junkies as many times as possible because I know it annoys John so much
2: (laughs) I thought we were doing so well to get this far through with only like one mention
1: Uh,
0: it's way more than one LJ trust me I've tallied them Anyways Uh, get us off it quick.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I mean yes let's bring it back to the evidence. So there's a lot of evidence out there and actually some really interesting methodology to measure environmental and social impacts that I'm really looking forward to getting into on future episodes because it's really helped to expand my knowledge of different um, methodologies. But for now I'd also just like to End on recommending a paper that is a bit radical. It's called Reimagining Public Health. And I'm just gonna read a quote that I think really sums up where the conversation on climate change and health needs to be. So the author is Guppy Bowler, and she says, Climate change is already here, it's just unequally distributed. From air pollution to food insecurity, housing and displacement, today's crises of inequality and climate are intertwined. And I think this brings it back to, I guess, what I was trying to say at the beginning: that this really needs as not to segregate the issues, but to really look at our very messy world and all its messiness. And I think this can be really helpful, um, or it certainly helped me in making it real for our local populations. So personally, it's really helped me to think about how I can be effective in, for example, reducing air pollution, which affects the patients I see in my clinic in South London, in particular, those in lower socioeconomic groups and people of colour. And it's a cliche, but I think global, act local is quite helpful. So I can't immediately fix capitalism, but I can get my hospital to monitor the air quality on our site, and I can get my department to look at inhaler use. And actually, those things really do matter.
0: Fantastic. Oh, LJ, that's super inspiring. And I think it's been a really great introduction to quite a messy, complex topic that hopefully over the next few months, we're going to be bringing more and more evidence to and trying to help healthcare professionals um, sort of understand it more and more. So keep an eye on your podcast feeds for future Climate Zone episodes coming up, um, interspersed with, of course, our usual journal roundups, which we will keep bringing to you. But before we go, uh, maybe it's good to recap uh, a few things. There's been loads in that this episode, which I think has been super interesting. And I think just giving one take home point from this Climate Zone intro would be really useful. So um, Barney, I'm going to go to you first. What's your take home from this conversation?
1: Thanks, John, and thank you all for all your hard work. And um, looking through all of this, I think for me it's been really useful just to, you know, to go over my part and to hear you all speak to get a really good overview. um I'm going to be very, you know, vague and broad, but sort of understanding a few of the percentages, understanding what the problem is, and actually feeling that there's some hope for the future. That's going to be my overall take home from this.
3: Thanks. I, th- I think. I wanted to say that my take home was going to be never to go to Australia, but that's probably a bit simple. And actually it is, I think, to, as LJ said near the end, to put sustainability into every quip that you try and do and to just keep the enthusiasm going that way. And I think that's something I'll take forward in the future.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that was really inspiring. Um, LJ, what's your take home?
2: Um my take home is that we can achieve a lot together I know that sounds cheesy but it's been really nice to chat and it's really nice to have some enthusiasm and to think about how both in our personal and our professional lives we can really make an impact and something that Katia said um, from that paper that looks at where most of the carbon now is now that we've done a, such a brilliant job of decarbonizing the, the grid is just a reminder to me to think about how we start to influence supply chains and the things that we have slightly less more direct less direct control over so that's a mm. real challenge for the future but something i think yeah needs a lot of focus so thanks mm. for, for reminding us of that
0: brilliant and it it might just be because it's one of the last things we talked about but for me the thing i'm going to take away is that that quote lj that you shared with us climate change is already here it's just unequally distributed and i think that's really really great um quote that we can take away
3: hmm.
1: also that's just something which is, i think yeah health healthcare professionals can relate to you nowadays after after covid it's really brought about people starting to realize that so um, trying to figure out how we can tackle it all at the same time would be the key. Lovely. Absolutely amazing, guys. So no plastic. <laughs> and, co- and co-hosts, we've going to try and do no plastic for the next, well, however long until we get our next episode out. And we'll, we'll give you an update of how that is. Can so we record guys, it tomorrow? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> tomorrow morning,
3: 6am. Yeah, we we no meals.
0: <laughs> oh crap, i got to deliver in. Brilliant,
1: yeah. well, guys. Thanks again for your hard work. Thank you, listeners. And we will catch up again soon. Take care, everyone. Can't wait. Bye.
3: Bye. Bye. Bye.
0: You have been listening to Journal Spotting. Special thanks to promotion team, Abby and Isabel, logo designer, Natalia Florman, and animations expert, Costa. Disclaimer time. This podcast is for educational use only. The views expressed are opinions based on our experience, the experience of our guests, and the literature we read. We are not affiliated to an institution. By listening to this podcast, you agree not to use the information we share to make decisions on how to treat your patients or even yourselves.